If you brought a Bible this morning, I'd love for you to turn to John chapter 13. And if you didn't bring one, or you brought your phone or whatever, that's great. Um, Not to worry, but we're going to be in John chapter 13. And my desire this morning is really to take a look at something very physical that Jesus was involved in. This is the story of him washing the disciples' feet. And it's probably one that you've heard preached a lot if you've been around in the church for a while. Now, if there's anybody sitting out there that hasn't had much church experience and are feeling like maybe this whole Jesus thing isn't for you, I want to try and draw you into this conversation as well because um, we get to see a picture of Jesus that's very different than perhaps what we've known uh, as it relates to the truth that he's trying to convey. I want to try and set the scene. Probably to do the best job of setting the scene, we'd have to turn to another gospel. Sure, you've heard this, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels, and they pretty much tell the same story. John's is not that way. He has a very different take on the whole picture, excuse me, the whole picture of Jesus, and it's um, interesting because he's going to see this from a different angle. But if we were to go to Luke in the cha- uh, chapter 22 of Luke, don't turn there, but if we were to go there, we would catch the flavor of what's going on here. So let me just kind of recount that from memory. This is coming up, well, in the middle of really the Passion Week for Christ. He is going to go to the cross this week. Some debate on what day we're actually talking about here. Uh, It's a very interesting kind of debate, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. At any rate, he knows what's going to happen. He's actually going to be accused and put on trial and tortured and beaten, and then he's going to be nailed to a cross, and he's going to die and go into the grave for three days, and then he's going to rise again, which is the crux of all of history. So that's what's coming. It's just a day away. And he pulls his little crew of disciples, 12 of them, away up to an upper room, and he wants to have a meal with them. And and in this meal, he wants to convey a number of things, but his, his deep love for them, his deep concern, he lets them know what's going to happen, and he tries to comfort them. Now, they're confused. They don't completely understand. They sit around the table, and they... Uh, are involved, if you will. It's a very, very intimate moment, though. This isn't for the masses. This is just for that, the, that crew of 12. So they're upstairs and involved there, and he gets right to the table, and he's trying to say, here's what my life looks like. It's, it's represented in bread and a cup, and, and these things are symbolic. And we're reading in Luke about him saying, listen, If this bread represents my body, I just want you to know that I'm going to give it up tomorrow. My body is going to die, and I'm going to do that for you, willingly. And death will not defeat me. And as my blood gets shed, that's what this cup represents. And it's going to cover your entire sin and make you righteous in front of my Father. And so this going to the cross, me dying, I'm telling you that I promise that I'm going to rise from the dead and I will justify you and make you righteous. And I promise in my own blood. And that's what this cup represents. It's an intense moment. 
It's very, very intimate. Now, I spent a good portion of my adult ministry life in student ministries. And students, junior high, high school, college, you're trying to connect at a significant level. And I worked really hard on creating moments. Something that would attach, uh, that you could attach truth to. And I can remember trying to set a moment up with students. And so I I very much feel Jesus' passion here. And I also understand what can happen in a moment like that. It's very intense. Uh, I think back to a couple different times with students getting right to that place where we're transferring the truth. Jesus does the same thing here. And as soon as that's completed, as soon as he says that they share the bread and the cup, In Luke's gospel, it says an argument arose immediately. You take something sacred and holy, and it becomes holy profane. An argument arises, and the argument is simply, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? Jesus has spoken many times on this because it comes up often with his disciples. Who's really going to be the greatest? And it's fascinating. You can go back and read it in Luke 22. He's so gracious with them. And he, he basically goes on to say, I've said this before, I'll tell you again, the greatest are going to have to be the least. The least are the ones who are going to serve. So the greatest are going to serve. So I'm setting a new metric, a new marker, a new yardstick. It's in that moment that John captures another scene. So let me read you the first five verses here. He says in John 13, 1, it was just before the Passover festival. So this isn't actually, the synoptics will say Jesus was kind of instituting this table uh, as uh, supplanting the Passover. John says it occurs actually before the Passover. It's an interesting concept, but I think it's something wholly new that Jesus is uh, instituting here at his table, all right? It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own, remember that, his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So let's stop there. For the record, this is Jesus. He who wraps the heavens and the clouds around himself as a towel. He, Jesus, the one who pours the waters into the rivers and lakes and oceans that you and I might even experience today. He's the one who tipped water into a basin. And and this is the same Jesus whom before every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All will kneel. Before him. And this one kneels to wash the feet of his disciples. Jesus is creating a turning point here. And 
While he's spoken all of these words before, I think he's tired of speaking. I think he's saying, I've tried to teach you this on any number of occasions. And so the words are finished. Now I'm just going to do it. Now I'm just going to put it into action. Greatness from now on, Jesus says, will be measured with the yardstick of service. So that's what you and I have to embrace this morning, this yardstick of service. What does it really look like? We come to church, we desire to be served, we desire to hear music that we can engage with, worship that actually fills our heart. And certainly we want to hear a good sermon. We don't want to be bored and we don't want to walk out of here saying that was a waste of time. And sometimes that's what's considered our church experience. But what Jesus has in mind here is the God of the universe incarnating into human form to give us a point of connection and teaching us to say, hey, this is how you live your life. Now, the sermon gets preached many times as an ethical sermon. This is what Christians ought to do. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, but I think John gives an angle that gives a very different picture here. What does Jesus know? Well, he knows everything right? It's crazy to look at this. Jesus knew that the hour had come. His knowledge is perfect, meaning there isn't an end and a beginning in God's view. It's all right there in front of him. He knew his coming death. He had planned it, and he's in complete control, complete charge of the situation. Now, It's interesting that in John's gospel, there's no recounting of individual exorcisms. You'll read it in the synoptics where Jesus throws out demons, people that are having some problems that way and exercises demons. There's not one incident in John that reveals that. Just this one cosmic exorcism. And even his reference to Judas Iscariot is literally saying to the world, I'm going to bind this strong man, and he will not, after the cross of my resurrection, have the power that he has now. It's fascinating to me, but if you read your Bible in the Gospels, and as you're reading along, you'll find the demonic almost on every page. You get past the Gospels into Acts, and you'll see a couple instances, but it starts to become non-existent even to the point where it's not even really talked about by Paul. Something very dramatic happens at the cross, and I'm saying it's a cosmic exorcism where Jesus indeed binds Satan from the power that he had previously. Now, he's also referencing here this journey that he's on. He references it, and and he understands that the journey really is is a journey down, first of all. He's going to have to go through the torture and the death and into the grave and he's actually going to start the process of decay. Just takes the body a few minutes when breath has left and blood has ceased to pump that the body then starts to decay. Cells start to implode and things start to change in the body and Jesus is going to be subject to that. So it is definitely a downward journey but it's also a journey up. We know that. Up through resurrection from the grave and back to the earth above the grave and then to his crowning ascension 
above the earth, into glory, and into the very presence of the one who sent him. So that's the journey he's referencing here. And John chooses to summarize this three-year term of ministry this way. Having loved his own. Have to let that sink in for a minute. Having loved his own to the end. Jesus' disciples are tenderly called his own. And as such, these... His disciples are the initial cells in the embryo of his now birthing church for the world. We're talking about church. Jesus sees these disciples and they are the beginning of his church on earth. The inner circle of friends will be Jesus' exclusive audience for the next five chapters in the book of John. John will say, this is now graduate school, given graduate instructions to his disciples. And believe it or not, we disciples, as a result of that teaching and it being passed on to us, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, we now are the main way that the risen Lord chooses to reach the world. So there's no way out. The church is plan A. Just for the record, there is no plan B. There's not going to be sky riding. There isn't going to be any other way in which God is going to reveal himself to the world. It's going to be through you and I, the ones who have placed our faith in Christ. God chooses this. So can you insert yourself into the narrative right now? You are his own. You and I. You can almost anticipate Jesus' words in in chapter 17, verse 18, when he says, um, as the Father has sent me into the world, so now I send them into the world. This is for us and an understanding that we are the ones that declare God to the world. Now, That would be really cool if you were sitting with Jesus, wouldn't it? Because you could reach out and touch him. You could ask him a question and he could respond. You would feel his presence. But what you're asked to do now is believe without seeing. John will make mention of that later on in chapter 17 in that prayer that Jesus prays. And he prays for us, the ones who believe without seeing. He says, they're blessed. But the idea now is that we have a huge spacing problem. I love the idea of God with skin on. That just feels like I could get my mind around that. Walking with Jesus and feeling his physical presence. But it's different now and we have a spacing problem. It's a terrible spacing problem. How do we relate to an invisible Lord? How do we do that? Well, in John's design, he wants to give us a picture of God. He shows us Jesus disrobing and re-robing. Now think about this for a second. He's going to take off all his clothes. So you can have an outer garment, a tunic, and he's going to remove both of those and probably just has a loincloth. That's all. 
And then he picks up a towel. But can you think of it theologically here for a second? It's a picture of Jesus' whole career. But it's a picture especially of his coming passion of this week. He takes off his purely divine rights as God of the universe from heaven and he puts on his human towel of earthly humility and service to the world. And he prepares to wash us, his people, in his cleansing crucifixion. And it's depicted here as a foot washing. This is really the picture that Jesus is showing us. It's a trailer for the movie that's coming. Very tantalizing to look at theologically. He's going to gird himself with humility. The towel that's wrapped around his waist is a long towel, and he'll tie it in a knot, and it'll have long tails. And those long tails will be used to dry the feet of the disciples. The task of washing feet. Let's talk about that. It was a pure act of hospitality in most homes in the Middle East. You would wash the feet of your guests. Now, when I say you, it wouldn't be you if you were the owner of the home. In fact, it wouldn't be you unless you were at the bottom of the food chain as a servant. And most likely, because of the cultural day, you'd be a woman. And this was left to the one who most depicted a slave in those days. This was the servant of lowest status, virtually synonymous with slavery. So therefore, Jesus' act, if you can think about this for a second, represents an assault on our usual notions of social hierarchy. He's going to blow that up because he's the king, the God of the universe, and now he's the one that's going to wash feet. John says that this happened during the meal. So they've already sat down, and then Jesus gets up. So we already know that no servant girl, no slave has washed the feet of anybody, and no disciple thought it would be appropriate to do. Nobody jumped up and said, no, I'll serve. But Jesus does. A divine figure with sovereignty over the whole of the cosmos, and now he takes on the role of a slave. This is going to preach much better than just words. It's interesting that I was reading a quote. um, Francis Collins, Christian apologist, and Richard Dawkins a few years ago, an atheist, were having a debate. This would be something Ken would be very much into. But this debate was occurring on the existence of God. And I was reading the transcript kind of back and forth. And it gets to the end. They're kind of summarizing some comments. And Dawkins makes this comment. He says, I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of the grandeur of the supernatural. They strike me as parochial, those things. If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian or any religion has ever proposed. So this is a shocking thing and looks pretty foolish to anybody searching for God. But this is how Jesus will help us with the spacing problem. It's fascinating. That spacing problem of seeing and not believing. 
This foot washing is going to help you and me. The service to others, our serving others, will connect us and help us to relate to an invisible Lord. So, what's it going to take? Well, if you look at verse 3, I can't skip over this. Listen to how John phrases Jesus just before he washes feet. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I don't feel comfortable being naked in front of people. It really isn't a comforting thought at all. Jesus is going to get naked. And John gives us this description prior to him disrobing. And I want you to see what Jesus actually believes. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. And he knew everything that the Father had given him. He is perfectly confident and perfectly free. Nothing hinders him from serving. It doesn't matter what you are going to think of me. That's what Jesus is saying in his mind. I'm completely free. How could I illustrate this to you? Um, I have a daughter and son-in-law and three grandkids that actually live in Sacramento. And recently I was down there. Donna and I went down. We watched a school play and hung out. And as usual, we, we each have an iPad and a phone. And when you're around grandkids, everybody wants to be on one of the devices, right? And it's always a fight. And Anyway, the youngest daughter, Sophie, is six years old. She got a hold of my wife's iPad. And they love to flip through the pictures and find the videos. And they're hoping for one of them, you know, to be caught on video. And they'll watch that 150 times. And uh, Sophie happened onto this video. It's five minutes long put to a song by a a band called Porcupine Tree. Has anybody heard of Porcupine Tree? You should probably go Google them afterwards and iTunes them or whatever. It's a brilliant, I think, a brilliant band. But they wrote a song um, called Time Flies. And um, the song, the gist of it is just about a guy and uh, being born and kind of growing up and finding a girl and getting married and their life and Looking backwards and time flies. It's a great song. I'm sure you'll love it. Well, it was on the iPad, and the video that accompanied it was my wife, Donna, grandma, and she was in kind of between the dining room and the living room, and she had propped up her iPad, and she danced the entire song. Just her in an interpretive dance. And now to change your laughter to tears, she actually sent that to her daughter, my daughter, on her 34th birthday. I had never seen it before. I had never seen it. And as Sophie punched it up, I heard the song, I thought, what's that? And she goes, Grandma! And I, I kind of lean over and see this thing, and I'm just mesmerized. Now, I, I'll admit to you, my wife can dance. And she's taught her grandkids, and it's just all part of the culture of the household. So I'm watching her do this dance as this song's going on. 
And my daughter is in the kitchen preparing food. And I, I'm looking at this, and I look over at her, and she's weeping. You know, and I'm kind of like, maybe I'm watching something I shouldn't be watching. Grandma's not paying a whole lot of attention, but I'm looking at her, and she's looking at Natalie, and, you know, we're all just kind of, what's going on here? And um, the, the song ends, and I, I turn to my daughter. I actually think I walk to her, and I just say, Natalie, what's going on? And she said, I don't think I can talk right now, Dad. She kind of gathered herself and then said, Mom sent that to me on my 34th birthday. Now, there's no way in hell that you're going to get me to do an interpretive dance for anybody. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like, that's the last thing that I would think of doing. Okay, but Donna did this, and I'm asking Natalie, she said, this is everything that I know about mom. This means everything to me. I'll play this at her funeral. Well, I think grandma was mortified, but at any rate... I said, you won't be around. It'll be okay. (laughs) At any rate, uh, she said, it is my mother completely free. She's uninhibited. This is how I would like to live my life. Can you feel that? When your love is so strong that it doesn't matter what people think, when inwardly you're so secure in the fact that someone loves you, that you can do that? Well, that's Jesus. He knows he's loved by the Father. He knows this whole story is very painful, and yet he's staying right in it. And he's able to give in this moment. So what does it mean for us? Well, I identify most with Peter in this whole situation. So look with me, if you will. Verse 6. As Jesus gets up and does this, he came to Simon Peter, verse 6, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. That needs to be circled. You need to remember that. Jesus is saying, I'll do this thing for you now, and later you're going to remember it. Remember we have that spacing problem? Jesus is speaking to it right now. Verse 8, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. I relate to Peter because I have a hard time. I find it very hard to swallow allowing the Lord to serve me. So can you resonate with that? Allowing Jesus to serve you? Preachers are pretty good about saying, Here's what you need to do to serve the Lord. Here's what he's done, and so you need to serve out of gratitude on a a debt that can't be repaid. We're very good because it's easier to guilt you into service. Actually, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if you actually will serve. It's just easier to preach. Let me try and make you feel guilty. 
so that you'll serve. And that we'll be a great church, serving each other in full guilt. I'm not sure if that works. So here's the deal. Our conscious, conscience tells us all too clearly who we really are, and this starts to stifle allowing the Lord to serve us. How can we let Jesus trump the truest truth we know about ourselves? So just stop and think about it. You know yourself. Your person. The part of you that no one knows completely. That part of you that laments that you're still stuck in some funky sin. You know, besetting sin. Have you ever heard that term? That's that sin that keeps coming up and coming up and coming up and, and you've stayed pretty faithful to keep confessing to God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Then pretty soon you're like, I can't confess this one more time. He's got to be getting sick of me, at least bored. It's the same sin. And I don't feel any, no resolution. It just feels like I can't gain any ground on this thing. Have you ever had that feeling? I had that feeling last night. It usually comes right before a sermon. I, get, I start hearing that inner voice that says, you can't get up and preach in front of people. Look at yourself. Look at your thought life. Really? It's debilitating. It's your conscience. It's my conscience. That's what Peter's saying, sort of. It's that inmost voice. But I want you to know something. My conscience and your conscience need to come under the submission of the gospel. In other words, our conscience is not Lord. Nor does it in fact tell us the final truth about ourselves. It doesn't. For sure, our conscience helps us. It helps us ethically and morally. But from a theological position, it should be constantly monitored and subdued by a far deeper gospel truth. That gospel goes far deeper and speaks far truer than our inmost voice. But it's Peter who wants to stand up for the honor of Jesus. In verse 8, no, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. He knows that he's not worthy for the Lord to serve him. He, in fact, should be serving the Lord. So it's that honor that Peter starts. And he starts, funny, because this is how I would do it too, but he starts by giving Jesus an order. Well, that's good. God of the universe, the king, and now you're going to tell him what to do. Well, that's, that's how I would do it. Peter starts by giving orders. How do, we do that same thing all the time. I determine what God cannot do. God, you can't forgive me. You can't save me, truly. You should think what I'm thinking in my brain. There's no way. But Jesus is saying, listen, you've accumulated the sin dust of this world. It's clinging to you like a besetting sin. And I want to wash you. And Peter's like, mm-mm. Jesus answers and he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. 
This is Jesus' answer. If I can't forgive your sins, you can't have my presence. That's the gospel. If Jesus can't trump our conscience, we can't have companionship with him. So this is what we're up against. This picture that Jesus is giving us without words, the washing of feet, it's grace. And it's grace versus moral religion, which is what's fomenting in Peter. The moral religion of a good conscience and good works that would deserve Jesus' love. But Jesus' salvation is free and undeserved. Or it is nothing. Walk away from it. Forget the Christian faith. It's very simple. I know you've seen this before, but you can take every religion in the world and you can put it on this side of the stage. I don't care whose religion it is. does not matter. They all go into this category. You give me any religion you want to, and I'm going to say to you that at the core of their belief system, there is something you must do in order to be reconciled to God, in order to find favor with God. And Christianity is on this side of the stage. And it says, not only is there nothing you can do, but you don't have the ability. That's why you need a savior. That's why we refer to Jesus as a savior, because he's going to save us. If there was something we could do, then why do we need someone to save us? So Christianity stands over here naked. And Jesus says, let me serve you. Let me wash you. Let me make you clean. Let us be loved by the Lord. So what do you need to do this morning? Listen very carefully. Please give in. Give up. Stop. Cease. Desist. Quit working. Quit trying to earn God's favor. You are his own. If you have placed your faith in him, you are his. Stop it. Let him wash you. Jesus wants to wash us not because we think or feel we deserve to be washed. He wants to so he can show his love in all of its glory. So what's Peter's reaction? Then wash all of me. Lord, my hands, my feet, everything. Uh, This Peter is a man who constantly loses his balance. We're going to go from don't touch me to dunk me, you know, and it's in a heartbeat. He overreacts. It's typical. But this kind of feels like me. He still answers in the same spirit, telling the Lord what to do. (laughs) Earlier, he determined what the Lord couldn't do or shouldn't do, and now he tells him what he should do. Wash all of me. But Jesus says, you're completely clean. Do, Peter, do the Lord the honor of believing his promise that you are already clean rather than your conscience. Peter, don't listen to the inner voice 
I've already washed you. You're clean. Don't listen to your merit or your deserving. Really, give up, Peter. Foot washing is an illustration of sanctification. You know, that ongoing work of God within our heart, whereby we are constantly renewed and attain an ever-growing humility, wanting to serve others in gratitude for all the benefits received. This is crucial. Jesus is saying, let me wash you, cleanse you, fill you up. It'll change your life. So this foot washing is not just teaching an ethic, it's also teaching us the gospel. However, let's talk about the ethic for just a second. We watched how Jesus was completely confident in being able to disrobe and go do this because of the love that he knew that his father had given to him. This is a picture for us. We must always start with the indicative of salvation. The difference between an indicative and an imperative. Simple little grammatical lesson. An indicative indicates something. Luke is on the stage. The imperative would be Luke should be in the pews. That's the imperative. You should or ought to do something. The indicative states what's true. We always start with the indicative first. What happens when we start with the imperative? This is what I should do. Well, preachers start that way. Here's what you should do. This is what Antioch should do. We can start there. But if we don't recall the indicative, then what we're working off is what I ought to do. And that works for a season, and then we get burnt out because we forgot why we're doing it. Well, we should serve others because it helps them. Yeah, up until the point that they don't want your service anymore. Come from a church, downtown Portland. It serves a lot of homeless people. And the same ones, over and over and over. And if you're around it for any length of time, you begin to think this is just a thankless carousel of need and problem. You'd like to think that you could solve it, and you can't. I can remember in the early days, we had people saying, okay, we got to go out and engage the homeless. And Rick McKinley was very careful to say, listen, when you get out there, just understand they're probably going to know their Bible better than you. Because that's all that's been preached at them for a very long time. And understand that a whole bunch of them are not going to want to come off the street. Would you please just go with them and befriend them? And have a relationship. And show them the love of God. And don't do it based on the fact that it's somehow going to give you a sense of uh, gratification. Because there's going to come a time when it's not gratifying any longer. And whatever motivates you is going to have to be a lot deeper than the circumstance. Does that make sense? Kind of like raising children. Same kind of thing. So we have to understand that we start with the imperative that I am loved, I am God's own. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. When you are secure in that knowledge, you can do anything. Foot washing is not a new sacrament or merely an ethical lesson. It's an example. It's the perfect depiction of what God has done for us in Jesus' atoning work. 
It also shows the disciples how they can live their lives in the most blessed way possible. It's crazy. Listen to this. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Blessed. Blessed in mutual service to each other. In mutual submission, forgiveness, and patience. What's that look like in your world and in my world? What is foot washing? We don't need to wash our feet today. We wear shoes and stuff and we don't get that dirty. But here's what foot washing looks like today. Be a good listener. Work hard at hospitality. Make people feel warm and welcome and loved because they showed up at your table. Pay attention. Good attention to your customers. Good presence with your spouse and children. Good being at your service kind of attitude as a whole way of living. This is what's pictured in the example of foot washing. And then Jesus says, if you can do this, you'll be blessed. What does blessed mean? Well, the practice of humility imparts blessedness. When you're secure in yourself and you can serve anybody, that's got a humility to it. There's no one that I can't serve. That blessedness comes. Being blessed does not necessarily refer to those who are considered happy by others. That's not what we're talking about. Nor even is it to those who consider themselves happy. Rather, this is blessedness. Listen. It's to those who know that they are the object of God's favor. And the, the rest of the world will know that you're the object of God's favor when you serve because you're secure and nothing is below you. You see, this is what is the antidote to the spacing problem. We can't see Jesus with skin on right now. But the washing of another's feet allows us to see. If you're on the receiving end of that, you see Jesus when someone serves you with a full, confident, secure heart. Not because they've been guilted into it. And you can tell the difference, can't you? Absolutely. When somebody is just fighting their way through it, that they have to do this, versus someone who is free to do it, and it exudes love. You see Jesus, and that corrects the spacing problem. The invisible Lord is now visible. And if you're favored by God, and you actually know it, humility will be the very essence of your character. Because you'll understand that the favor that's given to you has nothing to do with you deserving it. 
and you're going to possess the peace of God that passes all understanding. How does that sound? Well, I don't know where you're at this morning. Perhaps you're back at that place of saying, I need to give in and give up. And I want to pour gasoline on that fire. Yes, allow Jesus to love you. Allow Jesus to serve you. Now maybe you do feel that now. The actual act of serving another person creates in us the ability to see Jesus. And that may be starting just with your family that you would serve because you know that God loves you and you long for them to know that love. That's how they're best going to see it. As a community, you serve each other. This isn't about volunteering in kids' ministry. There are no volunteers in Jesus' kingdom. They're just practitioners. We don't punch a clock called volunteer. We're always on. We serve because he served us. Maybe that's what your heart needs to hear. Or maybe what you need to hear is that this community of faith, this local community called Antioch, needs to serve this greater city called Bend. It's the privilege that Jesus gives us. Look with me at these last verses. Verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you in terms of who's blessed. I know that those I have chosen, but this is to fill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. He's referring to Judas. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Trinitarian theology at its best. It's crazy, but what Jesus says, if you would present yourself to a greater community that doesn't know Jesus and someone was to accept you and your hospitality and your service, they're actually accepting Jesus. And if they're accepting Jesus, they're accepting his father. Can you see that? This is plan A. So maybe that's where your heart is this morning. God's laid something on your heart to be about that. This is following Jesus. This is what it means to do that. And this morning, I'm, I'm grateful for Antioch. It's a crazy testimony in a crazy town that's gone through huge transformation. I was here 30 years ago. It's very different. And Antioch's now in this place. And I pray for you regularly, and pray that you would serve each other. And in that growing sense of humility and the favor that you feel, that you would go share that with somebody in Bend, someone else outside the community. Thanks for letting me be here. Can I pray for you? Father, this morning... We see this picture, and we hope, we pray, that it's just not merely words, but it's actually actionable 
picture. Jesus, who quit preaching and just got up and did this thing and said, pay attention. You're not going to understand right now, but you will later. God, would you help us to understand that? We need desperately to know the indicative of our salvation, that you love us to the very bottom, that there is nothing that we can do to be separated from you, and that that's the engine that drives us. And God, if you would be gracious and merciful to us, to Antioch, would you stir them to give to each other the visible Christ in service to each other? And God, if you'd pour out your grace and mercy, would you allow this body of believers to be the visible Christ to this greater Bend area? We love you and we long to step in to that whole idea of being your own. May it be so today for Jesus' sake and for his glory alone. Amen.